Well, dear friends, it's a great privilege to be with you again. A joy always to, to come here and to minister the word to you and with you. Uh, well, let's uh, turn to the gospel according to Matthew and chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And before we read the word of God, let's go to the Lord and seek his blessing. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, that you have spoken to us. You have spoken very clearly in creation. The heavens proclaim your glory. The skies proclaim the work of your hands in such a way that we must say how excellent in all the earth, Lord, our Lord is your name. You have spoken in a way that is undeniable a way that is clear, and a way that is glorious. And yet, Lord, we thank you above all that you have spoken to us in your word, in your Son, that you have in these last days spoken unto us by your Son, who is the brightness of your glory and the exact representation of your character. And so we pray, Lord, this evening, as we come now to read your holy word, your word that is clear, your word that is glorious, we pray for the illuminating power and work of the Spirit, the one of whom Jesus said, he will glorify me, for he will take from what is mine and he will show it unto you. And so we pray this, Lord, with expectation that you will hear us and answer this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. So Matthew chapter 16. We read, The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it, discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. <coughs> now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Amen. That's ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he receive all the blessing. We'd like to focus our attention this evening on these words, the words especially in verses 13 through 20, this great text concerning uh, the church of Jesus Christ. 
It was said of Mary, Queen of Scots, one time that she said that, if, uh, that when she was dead and if her body would be opened up and her heart would be seen, that you would find Kali written on her hearts. Kali being part of the north of France, the place from which the Queen of Scots came. She was saying that France was her love the place, but also everything France stood for. But what would we find if we could open up the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ? When he died, what was found written on his heart? Well, certainly when he died, uh, when his body was broken and his heart was revealed, what we find on the heart of the Savior is this, my church. In the great words of Paul in Ephesians 5.25, Jesus Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. The psalm that speaks most of the suffering of Christ, Psalm 22, also shows us the heart of the Savior as he suffers and as he dies. And as he suffers and as he dies, he is singing that he, that he will sing in the midst of his church. The church is what you find on the heart of the suffering Savior. What is then this church that Christ loved and that we confess. Martin Luther said that a seven-year-old girl understands what we mean by the church, and yet he said, it takes me thousands of words to try to explain what she understands. What is the church? The church that we confess to believe in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the Father, we believe in the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We do not believe in the church, but we do believe the church. We believe the doctrine concerning the church. The adjectives that are used there in the Apostles' Creed speak of a holy church, uh, a Catholic or a universal church. The holiness of the church reminds us that the church is not from this world. It's from God. It is the new creation of God as we were singing. Uh, and it is for God. That's what, something, well, that's what it means to be holy, something that is from God and for God. Well, that's the church. It is holy. It is from God and it is for God but it's also Catholic. And we should not let the Roman Catholic Church hijack that word Catholic so that when we speak about the Catholics, we're thinking Roman Catholics. No, the Catholic Church is the universal church. The church that you can find here in Canada, the church you can find in Scotland, the church you can find in Africa, the church you can find in Asia, the church you can find across this globe. It is the universal church. This church you can find anywhere on this world. So we confess, we believe a holy 
universal church, the Heidelberg Catechism, familiar to many, if not all of you here, summarizes what we believe concerning the church in question 54. It answers it this way. We believe that the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves to himself. There's the idea of holiness. It's to himself by his Spirit and Word out of the whole human race. There's the Catholicity. There's the universality of the church. Out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. When you study the doctrine of the church, you, you can look at it from many angles. You could think of the Old Testament church and compare it with the New Testament church, and you could analyze the things that are the same and then the things that are different. You, you could look at the church on earth, the church that we refer to as the church militant because it's still fighting against sin and Satan and a wicked world and compare it with the church in heaven, the church triumphant. It's the one church, but in different places. You could look at the marks of the church. What is the church? You could look at the officers of the church. You could look at the worship and the sacraments of the church. You could look at the gifts of the church. You could look at the mission of the church. Why is the church here? What is its purpose on earth? But we want this, this evening, for your encouragement, to focus our attention on the words that Jesus uses here in Matthew 16 from verse 13 to 20. The words that tell us uh, how Jesus builds up his church. And when we think of this church that Jesus builds up, it, it is Jesus who builds it up. Very clearly from these words, when Jesus says in verse 18, I will build my church. And in verse 19, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. It's telling us that the church doesn't come from this world. The church is not simply a good idea by clever people on this earth. It's not simply a social group. Let's get together and let's be religious and let's seek to do good in this world. It's not our idea. The church is from God. The church is the new creation or the recreation that Christ is making and building as the master builder. So, two points very simply this evening. Where, where does Christ build his church? And I'm going to smuggle in uh, when does Christ build his church into that first point. And then secondly, also the how does Jesus build his church? But where and how does Christ build his church? Well, firstly, Christ builds his church in the middle of a hostile and an ignorant world. He builds his church in the middle of an ignorant 
and a hostile world. If you think of that answer the Heidelberg Catechism gave us, think of the verbs that are used, that Christ gathers and preserves and defends his church. What does that imply? It implies it's being attacked. It implies that are, there, there are wolves that are attacking the sheep. There are enemies that are attacking the gates of this church. But this comes out also in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, we, we can look here at the timing of this passage, the timing of this great and central part of Matthew's gospel. This, this really is the climax to this point of Matthew's gospel, where Christ asks the most penetrating of question, who do you say that I am? But you look at the timing of, of Christ's question to his disciples, and you, you realize that this is a time of increased hostility. Theologians and commentators speak about the year that came before this as the year of the general favor for Christ. Generally speaking, people are for him. Yes, there's opposition, but generally speaking, it is a time of favor and acceptance. People are going to him. People are listening. But from this point on, we speak about the year of opposition. And, and this comes out in several places. You, you get it a few chapters before this. In chapter 12, verse 14, we read of the Pharisees <clears throat> taking counsel against Jesus how they might destroy him. So you see, suddenly there's this shift. Now they are trying to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 6, 66, uh, verse 66, after Jesus feeds the 5,000. He goes across the water of Galilee and crowds follow him. They want to see another miracle by him. And yet after he speaks to them about the need of eating his flesh and drinking his blood and of the Father uh, uh, calling and bringing them to the Savior, we read in John 6 verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples stopped following, stopped following. They went back and they walked no more with Jesus. And so that brings us now to this point where in verse 21, the professing church of the day reject him officially. Verse 21 again, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And these three categories of people make up what we know as the Sanhedrin, the 70 uh, ruling people or council or consistory or session in Jerusalem. And this is the church of the day. And it's going to reject him and it's going to kill him. And so Jesus begins at this point to tell his disciples, I am soon going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem and I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life. 
a ransom for many. And you, yes, I know your thoughts. You think that this death is going to be the end of the church. But, oh, he says, my people understand that it is this death that I will build my church upon. This is going to be the foundation. It is this death that is going to give hope to sinners lost and ruined in their sin. It is this death that will draw all men and women unto me. It is because of this death that I can say, I will build my church. So you see hostility in the timing. It's now this year of opposition. But you also see hostility and you see ignorance in the place, in the where, in the location that Christ asks this question. Verse 13 again, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now, here we're very far away from Jerusalem. We're, we're far away from the crowds. We're, we're in the borderland. This is the border of the promised land. So you could look back to Judea and to Jerusalem that way. But you look out the other way and you see Samaria. And beyond that, you see Greece. And beyond that, you see the, the Europeans. And way beyond that, you see the Canadians and the Americans. And you see a pagan people. That's where Jesus is. He's on the border of this promised land, looking back to Jerusalem, looking out to a pagan world. And it's there, Jesus says, who am I? Who am I? This is the great question, not just for the Jew, but this is the question for the Gentile. This is the question for the Jew. This is the question for the Canadian. Caesarea Philippi, a place where cultures met. In this place, you could see uh, the idols for Baal. In this place, you could see a shrine for the Greek god Pan, the god of nature. In this place, Herod the Great had, in about 20 BC, made a temple for Augustus Caesar. This was a place of emperor worship. And it's here that Christ brings his people and says, who do men say, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? It's as though he's looking back and he's looking that way and he's saying, what do the Jews say? But what does the world say? What do the Greeks say? What do the people of this day, what does the wisdom of the world say to this great question, who am I, the Son of Man. And it's the same in our own day. We have our own idols and mosques and abortion clinics here in Canada. And these people have their opinion as to who Jesus is and what we do or don't do with him. What do the, co the colleges of Canada say? What do your colleagues at work say? What do your profs at school say? What do your employers say? What do your friends say? What do our governments say? Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? So he's bringing them in this 
time, and he's bringing them in this place that speaks of hostility and that speaks of ignorance, and he's asking them this all-so-important question. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? That, my dear friends, is the most discriminating question there is. That's a question that divides families. It's a question that divides congregations. It's a question that ultimately will divide on the judgment seat of Christ when on the one side you're going to get all kinds of answers as to who Jesus is. On one side it will be legion. There will be many ideas about who Jesus is. On the other side, there will be a Catholic answer, a universal answer, one answer, one faith, one testimony. This is the Son of God. This is a dividing question. And the greatest obstacle, what, what is the greatest obstacle to the building of the church in Cambridge, Ontario, Ontario or anywhere else? It is ignorance and hostility to Jesus of Nazareth. So here in verse 14, you've got as many answers as you have people. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Well, Herod thought that. It's, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Other people read their Bibles a bit more and they go to the Old Testament and they go to the last book and they find in Malachi uh, a statement that says in the second last verse of the Old Testament that someone like Elijah is going to come again. And they say, this, this man, he, he, he's the Elijah that Malachi had prophesied about. Other people see what Jesus is doing and they see how he's pulling down the tradition of the elders. He's speaking against the Pharisees. He's pulling this down and he's building up his own theology. And they say, well, that's what Jeremiah did. He pulled down before he built up. He's Jeremiah. Other people say, well, I'm not sure, but he speaks with authority. He must be a prophet or one of the prophets. Now, this at least tells us we will never come to the truth about Jesus Christ by polling the opinions of men. But do notice that no one here is saying what the Pharisees back in Jerusalem were saying. No, nobody here is saying, well, he's a devil and he, he's mad. He's a wine-bibber. He's a friend of publicans and tax collectors and, and sinners. He's a sinner. He's a deceiver. They're not saying that. These statements sound very complimentary, don't they? Jeremiah, Elijah, a prophet, one of the prophets, John the Baptist, the greatest prophet. Isn't it true? Isn't it solemn? We can say nice things about Jesus Christ and yet come short of saying the thing we need to say. I don't think Satan cares if you think he's like Jeremiah or he's like John the Baptist or he's like Elijah. It's not enough. You can say good things. How, how, how like the world we live in. Some people say nice. He's a good teacher. He's a good example. You can follow his example. He was a good man. He's one of the prophets. He's, he's one way to go. That's fine for you. 
It's no compliment to Jesus to say, you're John the Baptist risen from the dead, or Elijah, or Jeremiah. This is, short, this is coming short. But, but anyhow, congregation here, see the encouragement here for you. What Jesus is saying, I will build my church. I will build my church, and I will do it in, a, in an ignorant context. I will do it in a hostile context. We've had a prayer request this evening about the hostility that we're facing here in Ontario. There, there are people who are against Christ and against his law. But Christ is saying in that context, then and there and in Cambridge at this time and in this place, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, all the power that Satan and hell can muster will not prevail against it. What an encouragement. But let's see here secondly, or thirdly, how, how Christ builds his church. And what Christ tells us here in these verses is, I will build my church by drawing out from my people a true confession of faith. Now, you might sit here and think, well, that sounds anticlimactic. But what Jesus is saying is the simplicity of faith, the, 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 the weakness of faith even, the, but, but the, the, the trueness of faith that simply takes this Jesus and, and says who he really is, is the way I will build my glorious church. And so he had asked question one, who do other people say that I am, as it were, to clear the wood? Okay, that's what they're saying. Well, put that aside now. Put that aside now. And now he presses the question on your conscience as well as mine, who do you say? Who do you say that I am? And it's very emphatic. It's very personal. You. Who do you say that I am? Well, other people might be wrong, but are you right? Now, people can speak about and are happy in church circles too to answer question one all day long. I'm going to, I can tell you why other people are wrong. I can tell you why other churches don't have quite the right emphasis, why they're, why they're wrong. Who do other people say that I am? Well, I can talk long about the errors of other people, but Jesus says, okay, leave that for one moment. Now you. Don't you love how Jesus comes personally to you in a crowd of people and says, you, individually, you here tonight, who do you say? You and God, and no one else. Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? He doesn't want you simply to parrot an answer, simply to say what other people are saying. He doesn't want you simply to make a confession of faith 
because you know it's the right thing to do, because you know that's what mum and dad have done, because you know what that's what other people are doing. No, he says, I want you to understand your own confession. I want your confession to be your confession. I want you to own it and know it yourself. Who do you say that I, the son of man, um, and Peter, verse 16, who else? Peter, in verse 16, he comes and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter, he's saying this from the depth of his own heart. This is his confession. Yes, he's speaking on behalf of the disciples, but he's saying it. He's owned this. He's seen Jesus. He's listened to Jesus. He's seen his miracles. He's heard his parables. He's heard his teaching. And when he's pushed now against the wall, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. You are the one who has come from God. You are the one who has heaven behind you. You are the one who is the prophet, the priest, and the king, who has come to save and to teach and to lead the people. You are the Christ, God's Messiah. You're not just a miracle worker like Elijah. You're not just a great prophet like Jeremiah. You're not just a great preacher like John the Baptist. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Don't you love that title? The Son of the living God. Here's Peter in Caesarea Philippi, and he looks out at the Greek world beyond them. He sees the idols, and they're dead. And he sees, as it were, the Greek world with all its philosophy, with Plato and Socrates and Pythagoras and the best of them collected. And he doesn't see life there. And he looks back at the religiosity of Jerusalem and of the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, and he doesn't see life there. He sees death there. But suddenly he looks at a person and he sees life in a person. And so you can be dead out there in the world. You can be dead sitting in here in a church. But if you have Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, you have life. You are the Son of the living God. Now, the title Son of Man that Jesus uses, who do men, men say that I, the Son of Man, am, is clearly a reference back to Daniel 7. The Jews knew Daniel chapter 7 very well. It's the chapter that speaks of one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven and coming to the Ancient of Days and coming before the throne of majestic glory in heaven and the one who makes an end of transgression, the one who makes an end of sin, this is what the Son of Man is coming to do. And this Son of Man, Peter looks at now and says, this Son of Man of Daniel 7, he is the Son of God, and he is you, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of Man of Daniel 7. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. What an awesome, even terrifying thing to realize suddenly I'm standing before the living God. You are the Son of God. What a confession. 
What a glorious confession. This is not anticlimactic. I will build my church by drawing out a true confession of faith. Not anticlimactic when the confession of faith realizes that the one you're confessing is the Son of God, incarnate in flesh. Well, Peter, where did you get that from? Where did you get that from, Peter? Where did that come from? Where did you get this confession? Jesus tells him it's not from blood. Jesus answered, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Simon, son of Jonah, bar Jonah. He's reminding him who he is. Your, Your flesh, your blood. This he's saying, this did not come from Greece. This did not come from your reading. This did not come from your education. This did not come because you're a particularly clever person. It's not flesh and blood. It's not even your brother Andrew who we love because he's the one who introduced you to Jesus. We found the Christ. We found the Messiah. Come and see him, Andrew had said to Peter. But that's not the origin of this confession. The origin of this confession is the same as the origin of the church. It's heaven. My Father in heaven, he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so the question for us is, is is the confession that you make of Christ, the affection, the hope you have in him, the affection you have for him, is it something you can explain merely in human terms? Why are you a Christian? Why do you love to come here and worship? Why do you speak about this place of heaven you're going to, and this desire to be with Christ, how do you explain yourself as a Christian? What would you say? Would you say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's, I, I turned a new leaf. I tried to do things right. I stopped doing these wrong things. I, I had a reformation of life. I began to pray. I began to read the Bible. And I've done all these things. That's what explains me. That's why Jesus is saying, my This comes from heaven. And the only way to explain a true confession of faith is to say, God has done something in my life. God came to me when I was dead in trespasses and in sin. And he came and he took hold of me and he showed me his glorious son. And he gave me the faith to simply lay hold upon him. And these arms of faith have embraced him. And this is all, it's all the work of God. It's the gift of God. Thanks be to God. That's what explains me. You cannot explain a Christian simply in human terms. Verse 18, Christ goes on and says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter and rock is the same word in Greek. You are Peter, and on this Peter. Or you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, you likely know this, this text is one of the, the most disputed texts in, in Christendom, and uh, the Roman Catholic Church have taken this and said that you know, P- 
Peter is the foundation of the church. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And so Peter is the foundation, and all the, 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 the line that comes from Peter, this is the foundation of the church from which you get the, the office of the, the papacy or the pope of Rome. The problem with that, of course, well, there's many problems with that, but one problem is this passage isn't focusing on Peter. This passage is focusing on Christ and on the confession of faith in him. There's also verses like Ephesians 2 verse 20 that speak about the foundation as being not just one of the apostles, Peter, but all the apostles. The church is built upon the doctrine, the, the confession of the of the apostolic church. And so insofar as the church is, is um, preaching Christ and speaking of Christ then, and confessing this Christ, then that confession, that doctrinal confession, that is the foundation upon which this church is built upon, Christ himself being the chief corner stone. In verse 19, he goes on, and basically he's saying here, another, another staggering statement, but he's basically saying the church on earth continues the work of Christ. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the force of the original Greek here has this idea that whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. There's an assumption here that the church is preaching the gospel. The church is teaching the word of Christ from the scriptures. And insofar as it does that, it will, do, it will divide. And when people don't believe the gospel, then Jesus is saying that this has already been bound in heaven. When people do believe the gospel, this has already happened in heaven. It's heaven first, then the church. But the basic point is that uh, the work of the church on earth, then, is a continuation of the work of Christ. Of course, it's Christ who's working in and through the church. And here's a question, then, for us here at Riverside. Is the work that we are doing here, is the work that you are doing here, is it, is it the work of Jesus Christ? You know, why, why do you come? Or do you come out of habit? Do you come because you know you need to? Do you come because it impresses others? Or is the, is the burden of your coming here because you are doing the work of Jesus Christ? You are worshiping Christ and you are witnessing to Christ. And what an encouragement this passage is for the witness of the gospel. You don't go into Cambridge or into your street or into your work and tell people they not need to become more educated or more clever or anything else like that. You go to them and you say, you need Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of sinners. He is my Savior and He will be a Savior for you too. May that be an encouragement for us to go into the streets and into the communities and to 
continue the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what He has done, what he, is, what he is doing in heaven is being done here on earth. Christ is with His church. Christ has not left His church. As our brother prayed, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, may this be an encouragement when we think of when, when we think of where, and when we think of how Jesus builds the church. That, that gives us an encouragement that he's, he's doing it here. He's doing it now. And He's doing it all for His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Good and gracious and glorious Head of the Church, oh, we thank You so much for this glorious body that You have created and recreated and will one day perfect an everlasting glory. We think especially of those who have lost or loved ones or who are going through difficult times and there's this fear of death. May even a text like this be a comfort to them that the gates of hell, the gates of death, it will not destroy the church, that this church is forever, uh, that those who are members here uh, do not cease to be members at death, but simply move from one part of the church to another, from the church militant to the church in glory. Oh Lord, we thank you for your penetrating honesty with us and pressing upon us this question, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And we pray that we would indeed search our hearts and our souls and stop at nothing less than what Peter and all the church come to say, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. We pray for your blessing upon this dear people here. Lord, grant your protection, grant your uh, your blessing to be upon them and upon those who lead and serve in the church here. Lord, strengthen them and give them the wisdom and the grace that they need. And may we be a people indeed who love one another. As our Lord said, by this all men know you are my disciples when you love one another. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.